0: I reckon it was probably when I was around about 10, 11 years old, I still remember distinctly in my life that the message that had been somehow kind of formed in my brain over time was that the goal was to be rich. I think we've all gone through this at some point in time. You know, maybe we mature from that. Maybe we're still suffering from it a little bit. But I certainly distinctly remember this particular time in my life where that was the goal. And I think probably Disney movies had something to do with it. Um, I don't know if you ever came across blank check. Um, I remember that the ability to sign a check for $1 million would suddenly unleash your life into every single possibility that you could ever imagine forever. We now know that you needed a couple extra zeros on the end of that to get even close. And it wasn't... It didn't matter how many times I watched Richie Rich over and over and over again, I was still convinced that it would be far more fun to have a Maccas in my house than to play baseball with some kids on the street. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but like, basically they were trying really, really hard to be like, hey, it's not about being rich, it's about friendship. And yet the best part, the part that everyone always remembers was, what, he had a Maccas in his house? They just missed the mark a little bit, right? I mean, the truth is that maybe we grow out of some of these things, maybe we kind of revert back to them from time to time, but money can so easily take hold of our hearts and of our minds, which is why every so often in church we talk about money. And before your instincts want to kind of reject and be like, ah, I wanted to point out we talk about it far less than Jesus did. In fact, it was one of the things that Jesus talked about all the time. Here at ASBC, we don't even do those little talks before the money-giving section, right, that you find in some churches. We don't talk about it a heap, but we do need to talk about it, right? Because while we're grateful for those who choose to sow into the life of the church, and as I mentioned, people sow into all sorts of kingdom work all over the world, we have to understand that the grip that money can have on our hearts, which is why over the next two weeks, this week and then Ian next week, in both AM and PM services, we're just going to use this series as a reminder of who we are, what we have, and the kind of posture that we ought to take with our money. I've said it before, but I think this is just a great question for people to reflect on on a regular basis. And I reflect upon it myself. Are my finances, whether I feel like I have a lot or a little, are they closely aligned with God's will? It's just a great question, you know? And we could ask that about our energy as well and about our time. But actually, when we think about our money, like, are they closely aligned with God's will? Is that something that I deliberately seek to pursue and, and, and be a good steward of? Like, is that where my money is headed? Or is this kind of, am I kind of accidental with my money? I just kind of kind of go about my business and I don't think about it too much. I mean, I think one of the reasons that we don't talk about money in church is because for some of us, we feel like there's strings attached, you know? We've been conditioned to believe that people only raise issues of money because they want some of ours, Right? And we've experienced that from time to time. But the reason that we must talk about finances is because Jesus knew how severely it could impact our trust and dependence on God. And I'm actually convinced that conversations from a Christian perspective around money is actually one of the greatest missional opportunities we have to engage in our world. I'm actually convinced of that. If we can actually get a hold on how we understand our finances and how we don't let them shape our lives, it actually is an incredible missional avenue to speak into a context for which the majority of people it absolutely does. So, I encourage you to tune in on this. It may be that you feel personally convicted, but it may also equip you with a tool to get you thinking about the kind of conversation you might be having with a colleague in your workplace or a broader family member. But let's start off with a question. If we're gonna talk about how to be rich, who is rich? Have you ever considered how much money it would take uh, for someone to be rich? Because rich always seems to be the other person, right? That would be Elon Musk, right? He would be the rich one, right? Now, according to Finder Australia Research, the level of income we would need in order to feel rich would be approximately $326,000. That's what they determine per year, which is almost seven times what the median personal income is in the country. Another bit of notable research in the US indicated that most people think that anyone who has at least twice the wealth that they have is rich, which means, of course, that nobody's rich, but everyone knows somebody who is, right? Isn't that convenient? You see, comparison is very deceptive because people confuse feeling rich with actually being rich. And while we could debate, probably not in this context, around things like minimum wage and various entitlements, we have to acknowledge, particularly as Australians sitting in this room, that we live in a country where welfare exists, we have free access to healthcare, food, water, sanitation, and jobs, and so regardless of what our account balance is right now, we are a rich nation. So let's just get a little bit of perspective just in case. We fall into that trap of saying, rich is the other person, right? You see, no matter where we stand on the economy, we live perhaps in the richest time in one of the richest nations in history. And the fact that we're sitting here in church, and you most likely, not for everyone, but most likely got here by some form of transportation, you're already rich by global standards, okay? And so we just need to just get some perspective sometimes. And I speak this not as... I speak this as myself in this too, right? We just got to get that perspective. And the first step to being rich is by identifying that we already are. Because if we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that being rich and dealing with richness is somebody else's problem, then so easily money and finances can start to deceive our heart and take us captive so that we become rich its subject. And so we're going to speak from 1 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is a great passage and Ian's going to follow it on next week. This really is a two-part series. You need to come to both, all right? So guaranteed attendance next week or join us online. But this is what uh, is written by Paul to his disciple Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. These, uh, he's talking uh, to Timothy who is seeking to guide and lead the church in Ephesus at the time. A very rich place, all right? A very rich place. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. I just got to pause there. Sometimes we read these passages and again we can be like, oh look at the state that they were in. Like, we just, just for a moment, be like, oh my goodness, do we ever have controversy and unnecessary quarrels about words? <laughs> oh, like, come on. I love it. All right, sorry, that was a side issue. All right, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, of course, I feel like I've got to speak to this, particularly within the context of church. This is one of those passages that directly speaks against like a prosperity gospel type thing. Like you align yourself with God's will and yeah, you get all the finances and all the stuff that you want. Like this is like really clear. The people who are deceived, who have been robbed of the truth, think that godliness is a means to financial gain. It's right there, all right? So that is not what we are on about, right? People who had bought into that, that thinking had actually been described by Paul as people who had a corrupt mind but Paul does say that there is a gain to be had it just isn't in finances he continues but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it but if we have food and clothing we will be content with that And so people were buying into this whole church thing and they were saying they're buying into this whole Jesus thing. And there were some people who were like, hey, this godliness, this pursuit of Jesus and God's way, I'm going to get me some dough from this. There's going to be some financial gain for me as a result of this. And Paul basically says, hey, no, no, you've bought into the wrong gospel. You have a corrupted mind. You are deceiving yourself. And then he flips the books and says there is a gain, though. This isn't that there is no gain. There is a gain, but it isn't financial. Rather, the greatest gain for godliness and living God's way and adopting his way of thinking is actually the gain of contentment. Contentment. And I believe we live in a world that desperately wants to be content but has no idea how to find it. And I think that we can fall into this same trap as well. I mean, we are super aware that the way that the world thinks. And when I say the world, I'm just talking about how society functions outside of God's way. That they feel like the the, the gain and the commit, sorry, the um, sorry, the contentment will come via means of finances. They feel like if I'm self-serving, they wouldn't talk about it that way. But if I'm self-serving, if I build up resources to secure myself, then that will give me contentment. That's how the world thinks. But Paul is pointing out that is not what God is about. You see, if people build up their finances and and they find that kind of security and believe that that security will bring the content, it actually doesn't. Because what happens is two things. One, we end up wanting more, right? Because the richer you get, the more your priorities uh, begin to separate from your actual needs and what you just want. But the other thing is then you have to secure That which brings you contentment. I have to secure my finances. I have to make sure I don't lose my finances because I place my trust in these things and that is what's giving me contentment so that I'm worried about losing this very thing, which ironically does not make us content. And yet God created us to be content. God created us to live in the world in such a way that we didn't carry this kind of anxiety of things falling apart. And so while the world seeks to place their trust in finances in order to bring a contentment that just simply doesn't deliver, Jesus actually points out in Matthew chapter 6 the reality of a temporary world. You see, the gain of godliness is contentment rather than a type of deceiving contentment that comes with financial gain. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus himself makes this direct connection between our finances and our desires and that which we treasure and the state of our heart. And this is why we need to talk about this stuff, right? Right? Because Jesus is interested in the state of our heart. He doesn't want us to live as anxious people. He doesn't want us to live seeking the next dime in order to find some sort of security that simply doesn't deliver. I mean, again, there's so much anxiety around money. Like, like, and, and I get, right, this, I get this. Like, we're talking about interest rate rises, you know, and you hear in the media, it's like, oh, 12th straight interest rate rise. And, and I recognize that's putting financial pressure on people and it's putting often financial pressure on the vulnerable, okay? So let's just be honest about that. And maybe as a church, let's consider how can we support people in that time, yeah? So I'm not pretending like these things aren't real, but at the same time, we need to be reminded that that which exists within this world is temporary stuff is temporary there was another study um, over in by credit Karma in the us and found that almost half in fact it was 48 percent of millennials spent money beyond their means simply to keep up with their friends the status of their friends right it's like i didn't need to spend this money but because my friends have it i'm spending this money in order to keep up appearances because i want to feel secure in who i am but jesus is saying all this stuff that we have it's not bad right Remember Genesis 1? It's good. It's good stuff, right? But it is temporary, right? It's temporary. And so Jesus actually invites us to view our wealth, whatever wealth we have, through the lens of eternity. And what that does, it actually loosens its grip on us, right, and our grip on it. Jesus essentially says we need to get some perspective because if we don't get perspective, then we are going to find ourselves worried, and anxious, and controlled by something that was never created to control us. Paul continues. have got too many slides here. 1 Timothy chapter 6. He continues, Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, again, this phrase that you often hear kind of spouted about that's actually being butchered, they say the money is the root of all evil. That's not what Jesus says. (laughs) He doesn't say the, the money is the root of all evil. In fact, he says in the text that the love of money is the root, right? See, when we say money is the root of all evil, that makes money potentially bad, right? As in like inherently bad. It is the root of evil. Well, what Jesus says is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right? And those who want to get rich, if that is their primary desire, is like, if I just want to have that Maccas in my house, if that is my pursuit, right, then I am falling into a temptation and a trap. You see, because this is a desire that then leads to other desires. If I get the Maccas, maybe I can also get the KFC option. Like, we do this, right? I'm joking about these examples. No one, well, I don't know, maybe someone is. But, but we do this. We say, once I've got this, then I will get this. And this is, as Paul describes it, foolish and harmful, with the ultimate consequence being grief. Going back to that text. They pierce themselves with many grieves. And it's just so counterintuitive to think that I'm wanting this stuff, and if I fulfill these desires, the last thing that I'm going to feel is grief, right? And yet what is grief but a sense of loss? I don't have something I want. And if we step into that perpetuating cycle of getting what we want and then looking for the next thing, what are we going to experience over and over again? Not a sense of contentment. We're going to experience grief. Grief that God did not create us to experience. And so what we end up when we're in that state of grief is, of course, discontentment, which is one of the biggest dangers of being rich, which we've determined is all of us right now. Discontentment, which may seem counterintuitive, again, if you don't feel rich. Surely the rich person would appreciate all that they have. How can they not appreciate what they have? But the more you have and the more you want. And the more you have, the more you need to protect what you have. And in that moment, in that moment, you are defined by what you don't have rather than what you do. Let me just back that up again, okay? The more you have, the more you want. And the more you have, the more you need to protect that which you have. Okay? And in that moment, you are defined by what you don't have. Because it's always the next thing and it's always the security that will never be enough to hold this finance which has become an idol and a form of security within our lives. Which is why gratitude is so important. Because gratitude flips this equation from being defined by what we don't have, by being thankful for what we do have. And so this is the first lesson in how to be rich. I suppose the first lesson is know that you are, And the second lesson is gratitude is the antithesis. It is the antidote to all these dangers, deceptions, and distorted perspectives that the pursuit and the love of money can prompt. Because it just flips and turns the table and says, I am not going to be about what I don't have any longer. In fact, I'm going to start viewing the world differently. And in that moment, we move from a journey that heads us toward grief, to a journey that heads us toward contentment. And you might be here and you might be like, okay, Gavin, I get that I'm rich in relative terms, but, you know, there's still people richer than me. I want to acknowledge, right, that this factor, even if you feel like you are poor, right, can be a trap as well, right? The pursuit of money when you don't have much, right, can take up so much headspace, right, that it can become a form of idol in your life too. And again, God didn't create that for you either. So whether you feel rich and you need to appreciate and demonstrate that gratitude, or whether you feel poor and say, I don't don't fall into that trap because I don't have all that much stuff, I've got to ask the question, how much is the pursuit of money and the security of money taking up headspace as well? It's the same trap being defined by what we don't have rather than what we do, whether we're rich or poor. But again, relatively, we're all rich. This is for all of us. So here is the rub. Wealth and God will always be in competition for our heart. That's what Jesus points out. And wealth can easily become a substitute for God, depending on money rather than depending on God. Because when our money starts to fluctuate, we start to question God. Is God actually good when I lose all this money? Will God actually provide? When our questioning around God is shaped by that idol of money, his character becomes dependent upon the fluctuation of our bank account. And rather than being grateful for what we do have, we sometimes can allow our perceived deficit, that which we don't have, to define God. Which again is why gratitude fuels contentment. We're all tempted to place our faith in money. We're tempted to believe that if we make enough, we'll be able to control our circumstances and create a better life for ourselves. The problem with that view is that the more that we place our faith in our money, the more it controls us. And so scripture, Paul and Jesus, among many others, challenges us to look at our money differently because our lives are better when we place our trust in the one who actually provides. Our lives are actually better, right? This isn't a, hey, as a Christian, you just got to suck it up, right? This is God created you to not be ruled by your money. And when you live his way, it is a better way to live. And that is good news for a world who desperately needs contentment and who has played the game over and over again and it has not delivered. So again, I love this axiom that Andy Stanley first shared a little mantra that we could adopt each day as we wake up to ensure that our heart is in the right place in regard to our finances. I will not place my trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. I just love that. Sometimes we're just going to wake up each day and be like, today, in contrast to the world, I will not place my trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. I will not be controlled by my finances. Money is not evil, but if we allow it to get a hold on us, then it can do things in our heart that God never created for us. So if you're wealthy, don't let money rule you. Find contentment through godliness and gratitude. We don't need to lean on our wealth, but lean onto the one who gave us wealth. And so, I wonder what it will take for each of us to combat that spirit of entitlement. What is something we need to be grateful for each day? Next week, Ian's going to build upon this and talk about the possibilities that this freedom, this state of living in contentment, offers our world. But for this week, let's just cultivate our heart, recalibrate, shift it a little, be reminded of the blessings that we have, and to seriously ask that question who is in charge of me? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we recognize that you taught over and over again um, to your disciples that. that there was a bigger mission going on, that God, you were at work and doing a work in our hearts uh, that was preparing us for eternity. Um, And we recognize it's easy to get caught in the the language and the the practices of the world. It's easy to store up our treasures and build barns and pretend like we've got a sense of contentment from that. But we know our hearts. We know that we always crave more and We know that when we build up our finances, we worry about them being lost. Um, And so, God, I want to pray, Lord, that as your people, we would not exist within this state of worry, that we would not be suffering through grief on a regular basis because we've placed our trust in our riches. You are the God who richly provides us with all that we need. And we're a community, God, who can be that blessing to this world to meet people at their points of vulnerability and need too. Be readily willing to give our stuff away for eternal purposes. Let's drop treasures in heaven in that regard. And so do a work in our hearts, we pray. Shape us, teach us, convict us, so that we might find the freedom you created us to experience. In your name we pray. Amen.